to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullick. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fullick. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to business continuity, disasters, crisis management, COVID, well-being, resilience, anything that can help you, your organization, or your community plan for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm the only Alex Fullick there, so I'm really easy to find. And we'll see about getting you on the show. If that doesn't work, you can find me through alexfullick.com. Now, longtime listeners and viewers, you'll know that I talked about the Continuity and Resilience Today conference uh, that was virtual at the end of, uh, I think it was early December 2021 if I'm not mistaken. And my hope is that we'd be able to get a couple of those speakers to come on the show and talk about their topic or expand on their topic. And today I'm lucky enough to have one of those speakers from CRT on the topic of crisis management and crisis leadership. I'd like to welcome to the show, Oliver Schmidt. Oliver, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Alex. Really appreciate it. And I look forward to our conversation. Oh, you say that now. I haven't asked any questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure I will be of the same opinion. <laughs> yeah. Now, I know we've exchanged emails and I know uh, a little bit about yourself, but just in case others uh, that are listening and watching don't know who Oliver is, could you take a minute or two and talk about yourself? Sure, yeah, you yeah, do, no, I, how I you got into what you do? Sure. Yeah. Thank you. So uh, I actually hail from Europe and uh, back in the day, many moons ago, I studied uh, business management business administration, but also communication science. And I saw that there was an overlap between these two areas. And uh, after a couple of uh, different ways to um, make money, employment, I started my own company. Uh, that was back in uh, 1998. Uh, at that time, I lived in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, one of the three co-founders of C4CS, that is the business I, I run as the president and CEO. And from day one, we have specialized in two uh, areas, if you will. And that's really the two areas that I uh, know a lot about, if you will, at the end of the day. Uh, and that would be strategic communication on the one side and on the other uh, side. It's the crisis management work that we do that I uh speak about and you mentioned uh, continuity and resilience today and that's uh, I made two presentations there and today we're going to focus I believe on the uh, crisis management and leadership piece of the puzzle mm -hmm. and I, I do quite a bit of executive coaching in in this area so work with senior leaders including CEOs of larger uh, organizations corporations because crisis and we're probably going to explore this quite a bit is a different animal. You have the day-to-day -day management and then uh, a crisis starts and all of a sudden it's, the, it's this deer in the headlights thing and senior leaders uh, need direction and uh, lots of other things. And, and I'm one of the uh, probably growing number of advisors out there working with senior leaders or leadership teams. I do a lot of presentations to uh, boards of directors, for instance, to assist with crisis management related uh, 
tasks and solving problems, essentially. Great. Well, I'm glad to have you here. This will be mm -hmm. an interesting conversation, considering all the crises that are going on in the world right now. So, uh, uh, yeah, I, 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 I think so, too, Alex. <laughs> well, let's jump into what you were talking about at CRT. Mm -hmm. So my first question to you, because everybody seems to, I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people have different definitions. How do you define a crisis? It's an adversarial event that can either happen all of a sudden, or it can be a so-called smoldering crisis, which is something that develops from an issue into a crisis. And it, it impacts in, in my world and, and the definition that we use a, a company's performance, and at the end of the day, the bottom line. You know, uh, the crisis communication or strategic communication part that I referenced earlier as, as one of my areas of expertise would be more related to reputational crises or the reputational element of a crisis. Let's face it, in, in this day and age, we have a lot of social media related activities going on. And whenever something happens that may be completely limited to an operational uh, problem, tires are falling off a vehicle or whatever it may be, there is a, a public communication element in all this and that it needs further exploring, right? So we have internal audiences, external audiences, and that would be the strategic communication side. Um, mm -hmm. But generally speaking, we, we, we always say it's an adversarial event that uh, potentially significantly impacts the performance of, of an organization. Uh, and that would be bottom line at the end of the day. But before that, it's certainly a reputation that is, that is affected and stakeholder relationships. That's, that's how we define it. See, it never takes me long to go off script and shy away from the agenda. You mentioned a sudden, mm -hmm. right? One of the definitions of a disaster is a sudden unplanned event. Sure. So yeah. how do you distinguish or do you distinguish between a crisis and a disaster then? Uh, for me, crisis is much more than a disaster and a disaster would fall within the realm of what I define a crisis. To be and uh, a disaster, I mean, we, we give people categories, right? So when I walk into a room and there is a group of senior executives, then uh, there are questions along the lines of, uh, as you asked, well, Oliver, what is a crisis? And one of the ways in which we describe the, the phenomenon crisis, if you will, is we give our clients categories or types of crises, and one would in fact be natural disasters. So there you have your uh, sudden event, uh, not man-made, which is another way to uh, describe it or define it, right? There are man-made crises and ones that are not man-made. So a natural disaster, even though I have argued with, with people, including more recently, is climate change not man-made? Yeah, but I'm not going to get into the weeds there. So let's just say there is a natural disaster and that falls within the category of uh, non-man-made crisis, uh, crises. Um, and then uh, it's, it's always important to understand that there is much, much more than just uh, a, um, a natural disaster or an industrial accident, because those are the things that most commonly are um, associated with the term crisis. But we're really talking about uh, a wide variety of scenarios, and that may include anything along the lines of sexual harassment, 
I could be a financial fraud type scenario. So we work with uh, forensics uh, folks. We work with forensics folks actually on, also on the cybersecurity side of things. So um, a, a wide variety of scenarios, situations that we have dealt with in the past and that I have encountered uh, throughout those about 30 years of my career. Okay. <clears throat> Let's jump into uh, something else you were talking about. Three phases of crisis management. Mm -hmm. Now, the first one you identified is pre-crisis phase. Yeah. So we, we, uh, we, we utilize this as a, a model, again, for senior managers to understand where we're coming from. And we distinguish between the pre-crisis phase, the actual crisis, as in response phase, and then we have the post-crisis phase. And during the pre-crisis phase, we want to anticipate. So we have uh, a, a lot of prevention, obviously, as far as the focus is concerned. And it ties into risk management, where you identify threats and vulnerabilities. So the business continuity planning ties into that. And then uh, you will obviously have, as the bulk of work that needs to happen during this, this, this pre-crisis phase, the preparation. So you want to get ready for the what-ifs. And let's say you have identified based on usually the likelihood of it happening and the potential severity as the two uh, criteria that, that we look at. You have uh, established a list of, let's say, the top three or five or 10, and then you go about preventing. And that will entail all kinds of things from plan writing to training and so forth. You know? mm -hmm. But at a certain time, because the organizational life cycle has it that an organization, no matter how much in terms of resources gets put into the prevention side of things, a crisis will occur. Yeah. So I, I actually have uh, Ian Mitroff, uh, a quote that I often uh, include in my presentations. It's, it's really not a matter of if it's going to happen. It's a question of when is it going to happen? What is it going to look like? And so forth. Right. Yeah. Uh, but let's just say we reach the actual response phase, the crisis phase, then it's it's all about doing the right things in order to control, mitigate, and, and try to get a handle on things. You know? So that would be the second phase. Hopefully what we have done doing the pre-crisis phase will now come to fruition and we're able to deploy all of the different tools, plans, the training, as in skills that have been acquired by the uh, personnel that's in charge of uh, whatever they have been designated to do. And once we have things under control, we move into the post-crisis phase, and that's really about recovery, right? So uh, because this process is cyclical, we would then also almost immediately talk about, well, this is the pre-crisis phase again. So let's utilize what we hopefully have in terms of intelligence gathered during the response phase, as in we have logs that we now go to and, and analyze the information that has been put down in terms of interactions with stakeholders, in terms of whether uh, the uh, uh, steps that we took in order to control the crisis were actually effective. And uh, based upon the after action reports and whatever may whatever else may flow into that process step, we then have a full-blown evaluation. And again, that leads leads us back to the pre-crisis phase where we then uh, make adjustments, where we change protocols, where we may reassign people and so forth in order to be 
as best uh, as as possible prepared for the uh, for the remaining what ifs or a recurrence of what just happened to us. Right. Hopefully that doesn't happen. Well, it does, right? So we mentioned <laughs> yeah, natural disasters. I, I certainly have clients that have been struck by a, a hurricane, different different facilities, not just once, but multiple times. And that uh, certainly also applies to other crisis scenarios. As I mentioned earlier, the different categories. Yeah. Um, it's, it's certainly possible for a company to have any number of, for instance, cybersecurity related uh, incidents, right? And be, be a, a cyber attack and malware victim uh, maybe within uh, a month or so. So that's, that's not unheard of these days, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I've got a couple of questions for you based mm-hmm. on what you said. Um, we talked to, because you mentioned natural disasters, uh, I'll just say uh, earthquake. Sure. So yeah. there's an earthquake that happens in an area and multiple organizations uh, experience, obviously, uh, some sort of uh, crisis, you know, devastation, whatever. And you talked about contain and control. When you're con- uh, controlling and containing the, the situation, are you just looking at it from yourself or do you need the partnerships of those other businesses that have been impacted as well to work together to be able to get control of the situation. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned a natural disaster, earthquake. Uh, Definitely. We're all about forming partnerships ahead of time. There's not a single, let's go with the example, chemical company that uh, based on our recommendation or long before we entered the, the scene, uh, developed very good relationships with the fire brigade in the area. Mm-hmm. I mean, outside of having a, a the own fire service on site, that's 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 a must, right? And there are other relationships that need to be formed, and certainly even potentially with competitors, <laughs> we will work very closely if there is a crisis that affects not just us, but but also other organizations, geographically speaking, in in that same area or ones that belong to our group of companies within a certain sector or organizations within a certain sector, by all means, whatever we can do in order to, as you said, contain and control, we'll we'll be right there. Obviously, we do need to, we cannot disregard any uh, certainly uh, legal limitations or whatever else may stand in the way of, of collaborating with a certain third party. Uh, but I'm a, a firm believer in uh, pooling resources because that's what it's all about at the end of the day. Yeah. yeah. Well, it also makes, you know, let, let's put a happy face on this. You know, if you're seen to be helping others in uh, stressful times too, it looks good for you. Well, I mean, one one example that goes way beyond just just servicing a particular client, and in our case, usually corporations, uh, we work very closely and have for many years with the what's called in the U.S. the Local Emergency Planning Committee for the county we were headquartered in. And that is really a, a perfect example of a collaboration that extends the corporate world and includes municipalities. I mean, the FBI is in the boat. It's it's all these different entities and uh, at the end of the day, government agencies and so forth that collaborate. And this is an approach that has helped many uh, an organization in our area. Now, Pittsburgh, where I'm based, is not that natural disaster prone. So it's not like we have earthquakes here and so forth. maybe some flooding, uh, but outside of it, not too much is happening here. But still, uh, there are needs and uh, and they can be met via these these collaborations. 
I've, I've seen it myself many times. And I am, uh, as I said, uh, definitely uh, very much in favor of it, no doubt. Great. My other question had to do with the after action report or the lessons mm-hmm. learned. Um, mm-hmm. Would you recommend uh, doing those periodically throughout a crisis or waiting to the end? And the reason I ask that is I've been in some situations where you have leadership and they see because they come through the crisis, good or bad, uh, you know, whatever it was, they end up with rose colored glasses, you know, saying, hey, we did great. You know, we came out of it, you know, uh, got a few things to do, but hey, wonderful. Let's just move forward. Mm-hmm. Or you've got the leadership sitting in the room with daggers in their eyes trying to find blame and, you know, and penalize somebody, yeah. you know, for yeah. causing the, the situation. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts on when some of these lessons learned or action after action reports uh, get done? What are your thoughts? I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of evaluation ongoing during crisis. So there's there's no point in, uh, in fact, that's one of the, the ways in which I distinguish anything that happens during a crisis from, let's say, a marketing campaign that a company does, right? So we do a campaign. At the end of the campaign, we look at the results and we're happy because the numbers are great or they're not so great. During a crisis, we have to adapt on a potentially minute-by-minute basis. And in order to be able to do the right thing every minute of the hour, every hour of that particular day, we obviously need to reassess. We need to continuously monitor. One of the services that I find uh, crucial in, in that regard is, and I mentioned the communication side, reputation management side of things earlier, is uh, effective automated internet and media monitoring. Uh, and that is, can be extended to other stakeholders too. I mean, as we're picking up social media posts, we have all kinds of other parties in the mix and not just the traditional media. And in order to be informed what's happening out there, who is impacted in what way, it's critical to know all these things that are going on. Huh? I mean, sticking with a natural disaster type scenario, uh, how are we ever going to know who might need to be evacuated in a remote area, remote from where we are right now, if if we don't monitor and don't communicate with, with folks there? Huh? And ideally, that should be two ways. So I'm not just talking about looking at posts or uh, receiving information, but we should be in touch. There should be two-way communication going on. So we understand, again, on a minute-by-minute basis, what is actually happening and how can we provide the best support and uh, advice also that that would be available in any given situation. Uh, I like what you just said about communication needs to be both ways. Mm-hmm. You know, communication needs to be dialogue. If it's one way, Absolutely. it's just monologue. I've I've been saying that for years. Without the feedback, uh, you you will not be able to do to do best by by whatever stakeholder group. I use stakeholder group. I mean, from from a communication side, it would be an audience or public or whatever. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, you are providing a service to an organization, whatever your role may be in that realm, and you need to see to it that everyone is included. You can't just give you that example, you work with a company, they have a crisis on their hand, then all of a sudden uh, you forget about uh, the sales team, which is not at headquarters, which is out there, and they're left to their own devices, right? That's that's not yeah. good. Also, in terms of messaging, you mentioned communication. I mean, if, if there is no communication with the sales team, what are they supposed to say if a concerned customer asks them, what's, what, what's going on? Why are you not... 
providing the service or, or delivering the the uh, the goods for us at, at this time. What's what's happening? Yeah. So all of this needs to be needs to be very well gelled, and that's that's certainly only the case if there is two way communication or a dialogue, as you said, Alex. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, those sales people will start making things up on their own, and before you know it, that's your leadership your leadership has another crisis to deal with. That is very true and has often happened in, in my experience, yeah? that we are creating uh, uh, crises where there were none before uh, because we don't have our ducks in a row. Yeah? And that may be related to communication. That could be because we're not taking care of the initial operational problem sufficiently. And uh, whether that's a, a spill or whatever it may be, and there are after effects. There, it's a cascading thing. You, uh, you then have to deal with a host of additional problems potentially, and you're still not finished with dealing with the thing that happened initially. <laughs> that's that's, uh, that's certainly a possibility as well. Now, well, let, let's look at something else. Obviously, everybody knows we've been going through. Hopefully, at the tail end of a global pandemic. What's changed with crisis leadership, or how? Better yet, how did COVID? change leadership i i think it changed it yeah it, it actually did change it quite a bit from from where i sit and uh i i say that because i, I mentioned earlier that i've uh, provided executive coaching services uh in addition to uh consulting with with corporations primarily corporations and COVID has actually had a positive effect in that management teams tend to be more open to having discussions in regard to prevention and preparedness planning. So the readiness aspect has been highlighted by COVID. I, I have conversations uh, sometimes with the same leaders who, let's say two and a half years ago, were very reluctant to even have any type of communication specifically geared toward the preparedness aspect. And you talk to them about crisis readiness, and they said, well, sure enough, we're ready because I have three people working on it, and I pay them handsomely. <laughs> and that would not have been a sufficient answer, obviously. Uh, but now we're, we're getting more granular in terms of the investigation of where are we within this process? And Oliver, what does this process even look like? Uh, could you explain this a little bit? And that's uh, when I talked earlier about the three phases, that would be one of the things that we make very clear that uh, it, it never ends. So the preparedness planning process, the increasing readiness, organizational crisis readiness, that's an ongoing task. And you can't just, you can't just uh, say, okay, we're going to be dormant for the next three years and still expect to be, to be prepared. It just doesn't work that way. Now, there were companies, Alex, and this is the, the flip side of the coin, where uh, unfortunately, as a result of uh, a lot of economic strain caused by the, by the pandemic, despite the fact that management realized there is a need for proper planning and so forth, they simply were unable as a result of budget cuts and, and so forth. But even in those kinds of situations, we, we were able to talk to the management teams and say, let's keep this on our radar, however, because we will get through this. As you said earlier, maybe this is hopefully the tail end and there is the endemic status <laughs> approaching coming up soon for us. Uh, at, at that time, we will certainly revisit these things. And as we provided assistance during the pandemic, 
we we obviously took advantage of the fact that we had exposure, that we were able to talk to people about uh, supply chain related problems, uh, COVID-19 testing and, and vaccination, the reputational aspects of it, as well as the operational uh, calamities uh, in, involved in that regard. And, and, and we're we're on their radar at this point. I guess that would be a good good term to yeah, use that's here. That's a good thing. And that's a good thing. I mean, let's face it, we we do not we do not immediately produce anything that adds to the bottom line in our line of yeah. work, right? What we do is we help companies avoid disaster, but we can certainly not say within the next three months, you will have a crisis. And if you don't do X or Y or Z, you're going to lose $50 million or whatever. That's impossible, right? We, we're not fortune tellers. So we need to find a way to talk about the what ifs in a way so that senior management can relate to the, can relate what we're saying to their own experiences. And my point is that that was a lot easier during the pandemic and continues to be easier because we're not through it. And management teams, including CEOs, are open to having these conversations, more so in many cases, at least, compared to pre-pandemic times. Yeah, the, the, uh, I wonder if we'll ever be impacted by a disaster or a crisis right. thinking is, should be gone because everybody was impacted. And, and they also understand, and that's that's really a positive development there too, Alex. It's not just about plan writing, right? This this, I mean, we all preach the 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 duality of things. Uh, we need to have processes in place and plans and so forth. But if we do not conduct recurring training, we can have all kinds of plans, and we can revise the plans on a weekly basis, maybe even. Yeah. But we're not going to be able to mount an effective response because nobody has ever done it <laughs> and that's why and even if it's if it's just a tabletop exercise as in we're, we're not doing a full-blown drill or semi-live or whatever that helps tremendously so we have done more tabletops also because it's it's a lot easier to do a tabletop via zoom or using a different another platform and it's very effective we're, we're preparing a couple of tabletops right now uh, and companies uh, or clients decided not to go back to an in-person format, but for at least for now to, to stick with the, uh, the video conferencing format because they found during the pandemic, this, this actually works. Uh, we don't have to be in the same physical uh, location. Um, it's, it's much more convenient. And, and certainly a lot of people are talking about the fact that video conferencing is here to stay. And I, I certainly agree. And it applies in, in, in a certain way to um, our our discipline, if you will, and in particular, among other things, when it comes to the training aspect. Yeah, I've also found it's easier to schedule. Believe it or not. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I know that sounds weird, but it's actually true. No, I I, I agree. <laughs> I, I agree, Alex. <laughs> On that note, we've come to the end of our first segment today. We're talking about all. Sorry, talking with Oliver Schmidt about crisis leadership and crisis management, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. 
disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fulick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking about crisis leadership and crisis management with Oliver Schmidt. Oliver, in your CRT presentation, you had a diagram with a triangle um, where you talked about three uh, functional areas that need to come together during a crisis. Can you talk about those? Yeah, sure. I, I, I use that often and uh, uh, like to put emphasis on the fact that any response, organizational response to a crisis, whatever crisis it may be, will not be successful unless you have, unless you have a team effort put in place. And this particular graphic that I use shows three different areas, response areas at the end of the day that need to work hand in hand. And the first is what I uh, refer to as managerial response. That essentially means the decision-making. So that's the leadership. And we talk about leadership uh, today, Alex, that's the decision-making that needs to be in place in order to hopefully in a timely manner, in a concise manner, move forward as far as the response is concerned, right? And it all starts with decision-making because if nobody knows what to do because no decisions have been made, we're never gonna be able to contain and control. That's just it. Mm -hmm. And coaching leadership through this rapid fire response in terms of the need to decide potentially much quicker uh, compared to a day-to-day -day scenario, right? Where you have lots of meetings and then you call a couple of advisors and, maybe in two days, you have your decision as the CEO. Here, you might have two minutes. And it's a completely different ballgame, completely different. Hmm. So it's it's about the decision making that has to be in place and, and hopefully uh, in a flawless fashion. And that needs to be coupled, which is the second area with the operational response. What do I mean by that? That's all of the activities that flow out of the decisions that have been made in order to implement what has actually been decided. Uh, and let's just say it's an engineering related problem. I can't just talk that away. I actually need to fix something. So I need to get the engineers to work and everybody else who was involved in this process. And then uh, at the end of the process, we hopefully will be in a position to tell everyone we have been able to fix this. And then we would want to describe what we've actually done and so forth. Yeah. And that leads me to the third area. So it's the managerial response, it's the operational response, and then it's the communication response. And one and two are not going to work if I have the third area, the communication 
response tying into the other two areas and really enabling the decision-making and then the operational response. Because if I do not communicate effectively with internal stakeholders, I won't be able to fix things. And if I don't communicate with external stakeholders, I may have all kinds of problems because they no longer trust me. Uh, the stakeholder uh, trust is, is uh, diminished or even almost completely gone in, in many cases. And that's something we wanna avoid. Yeah. So that's why I show it's essentially three triangles. It's the managerial response, the uh, operational response, and the communication response, which does include internal, external, and then also social media, if you will, so anything online. Okay. And you talked about uh, impact assessments. Yes. Uh, in, what in, does in, that involve? Now, obviously, in business continuity, I know sure. what a, a BIA is, but right. in a crisis... Yeah. How do you do yeah. that? Yeah, so this is a little different from a, from, from a business impact analysis uh, where I'm coming from there. Again, talking to leadership teams, uh, folks who run large organizations, it's often important, in fact, essential to remind them that the way they see the world as they're sitting around the, that large table uh, discussing uh, important matters for the organization may be fundamentally different from how the general public or uh, specific stakeholder groups on the outside of the organization view the exact same problem as in an ongoing crisis. So while management may say, well, we understand the magnitude of this. We have analyzed the impact. We have numbers. We also knew what the probability was. We can talk about facts related to it. We understand what the consequences are. Uh, and then obviously the attorneys will chime in whether they are in-house or not and say, well, we really need to address liability here. So uh, at, we shouldn't say anything at this time. Uh, we're, we're in fact finding, uh, uh, we're in the process of uh, going through fact finding and uh, let's just see how things go. And what they don't realize is that they have a huge problem, potentially at least on their hands already, because there are not just one, but several stakeholder groups up in arms over what has happened and is continues to expire potentially at this time. So what I need to do as, as a consultant in terms of the leadership angle is to make them aware of a different view. And that view would be the stakeholder view, or you could also uh, call it the effective or emotional view, as opposed to the management's more technical and analytical view, right? And for that, I give them examples of stakeholders protesting, of uh, people uh, on social media uh, trolling the company, potentially following mm -hmm. an incident that may have happened two years ago, because they won't forget they were personally impacted, affected, and therefore they, they don't let up. And that's something that's very different because it's no longer about the facts, the magnitude, and all these things that we can, uh, in theory, at least measure quite accurately, it will be about stakeholder perception. And that's a very different animal that, that really asks us to look at the individual out there, not just a group, because the group is not, uh, it's, it's not homogenous, right? This, there, there's all kinds of different views within that one stakeholder group. So we need to understand how do these stakeholders tick? What are their issues? There is a term stakeholder analysis that, that feeds into that. And then we need to understand what stakeholder outrage is. 
because there are those stakeholders who are sort of neutral. They are not emotionally impacted, affected, and they say, hey, so what? Now, they might read about it in the news. But then you have this portion of stakeholders who are up in arms is an expression I used earlier, and they may actually already protest. So I'm talking to a senior management team in the boardroom or wherever, uh, online meeting during the pandemic. They say, yeah, we had this happen to us and we really, we really don't know. And I mentioned cybersecurity earlier, which is even, uh, even more difficult at times to get into the heads of executives. Mm -hmm. Yes, you see yourself as a victim here because somebody committed a criminal act and, and uh, breached your system. But at the end of the day, the perception, and that's what counts, that your stakeholders have is something you need to incorporate into your thinking now. And to them, you are the villain, not someone who uh, is, <laughs> is breaching your system and is stealing data. And then uh, let's just say it's a ransomware scenario, whatever. It is you who did not take proper care of the information that is now lost. And that information, unfortunately, pertains to those out there who are now very angry at you. And there needs to be a switch flipped, right? There, there needs to be an, an understanding created on the part of management teams or managers as individuals. I'm not saying it's a, I don't want to come out with a blanket statement that nobody understands. That's certainly not true. But you usually have a few, at least, that are on the fence and say, really, Oliver, is that that important? Is it? Yes, it is. Because if you don't care, take care of this problem right now, this may mushroom, and then you have a, a second crisis on your hands. You have a reputational crisis on your hands. Again, while you may still be battling the original problem because your cybersecurity issue, for instance, is not gonna go away within the next 24 hours. Uh, you need to go through the mandatory uh, notifications and so forth, uh, and then forensics will come in. This is gonna take potentially a long time. But if you make people angry now and you don't talk to them, dialogue, as we said earlier, Alex, they will be against you, potentially some of them, at least indefinitely. And that's something you don't want because that could be customers slash clients, that could be your vendors, that could be other external stakeholders, but also internal stakeholders. What if you lose talent? What if you have a problem with recruiting as a result of whatever it is that happened? Huh? So a double whammy. Not only are you having people who leave, who jump ship, uh, you also have problems uh, getting the pipeline filled again because they're saying, no, we're not going to work for this organization, right? They, their values are just not in line with what I stand for and what I believe in. And that has a lot to do with how you, reputationally speaking, respond to the issue from a communication perspective. Yeah. But that doesn't leave out the operational response. So you still need to fix this thing, right? If you don't, then you lose anyway, if you will. Yeah. Well, that kind of leads into one of the next things uh, I wanted mm -hmm. to talk about. You talk about key messages or a message triangle. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I use in my work a, a message triangle. And again, this is a little more on the reputation management side, of course, but very important to remind management teams, managers, leaders of organizations, no matter the size or geographic scope, whatever, that at the end of the day, they need to communicate three things succinctly when it comes to addressing internal and external stakeholders uh, in times of crisis, 
but certainly also outside of the, the crisis, but it's, mo it's even more important during a crisis. And that would be facts, feelings, and actions. And that's the triangle that I use in, in my work, right? So it, it, would, it would have facts, feelings, and actions. And what do I mean by that? Well, number one, you need to know facts, first of all. So that's your intelligence gathering that goes into the response to a crisis, phase two uh, that we talked about earlier. And then you need to utilize those facts because it's not just about knowing the facts yourself. You need to actually communicate them, obviously internally, because if, you're, if, if your engineers don't know that there is a problem, how are they ever going to be able to fix it? But that's only the start of things because you then also need to answer to uh, you need to answer questions from employees, from external stakeholders. There's the dreaded media, right? So that's a, a, a big unknown for a lot of executives I work with, where there is then coaching needed uh, along the lines of media interview skills and so forth. And in addition to facts, and this is where, where I often run into, uh, in, into hurdles, we need to be mindful of the fact that it's about empathy. And that's the feelings component. Hmm. Because if I, as an organization, and I log heads with lawyers there fairly uh, uh, regularly, I'm not talking about admitting guilt. That's not what this is about, which would then lead to open us up to liability and so forth. It's about coming across as human and not being, being cast as the villain right off the bat because we sound weird. We sound mechanical. We sound artificial we do not relate to people's feelings and that's that's a problem a huge problem and uh that's why that reminder is so important uh and, and it really comes down to being empathetic uh, it's it's the empathy piece of the puzzle that helps us tremendously and lastly if we say things that we mean but we don't follow up in terms of actions we're not going to be successful so if i talk to whatever stakeholder group it may be and I potentially even make a promise, but then don't follow through, well, that's gonna fly right back into my face. Uh, and that's the action part. So facts, feelings, actions, uh, the triangle that you referenced, Alex, these three things need to come together. Uh, and uh, if, if they don't, if only one of these components is missing, then we, we do have a problem. Well, when it comes to leadership, who should be the one showing the feelings? Because a it, lot of it, times you see a media spokesperson, uh -huh. and you said, you know, <clears throat> you mentioned legal, right? A lot of times the media spokesperson is reading a script that's come from communications and legal. Right. So first of all, again, it's not <clears throat> only external communication. It starts internal, right? So if I don't have uh, in place proper communication with internal audiences, and let's just say it's primarily employees, you might throw in the board of directors or retirees or whatever. Uh, according to whatever definition you might use. Um, but it has to be situation specific. You were asking me who, who needs to be the communicator. I, I often get these questions and uh, a CEO might ask, well, it's not my job. That's why I have 15 spokespeople or whatever. It's, and that may be true, but let's face it. Uh, if the magnitude of the, the crisis at hand demands that at a certain point, at least, senior leadership address the issue and be in touch with specific stakeholders, especially those that are personally impacted, then it is your job as a CEO to be available, to make yourself available. Mm. And if, uh, a, a, if 60 Minutes or whatever other uh, TV 
uh, for, format TV uh, um, program uh, calls, you, you can't just say, well, I'm going to let this handle the assistant to my second spokesperson or whatever. That, that's, that's just not going to work now. So it's, it's a matter of carefully analyzing the situation and based on experience. And that's where we come in as, as consultants, Alex, uh, because we've done it uh, many times and we can advise our clients accordingly. And that may very well include uh, helping designate specific people who will then perform tasks, including, for instance, communication uh, in the area of leadership internally, but also addressing external stakeholders. I guess it's also the context of the situation as well, because you mentioned, you know, 15 spokespeople. Okay, we had an application that crashed and people were impacted. Maybe a spokesperson is fine for that one. However, you manufactured uh, uh, some pharmaceutical or a food product that made a whole bunch of people sick or maybe even worse. Sure. Um, yeah. That's obviously should not be coming from a spokesperson, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Well, again, it, it has to be situation specific. And uh, as I said earlier, we have to keep in mind that uh, a, a, the severity of the event, the impact will determine. And that's, that's again, I, I said it earlier, you were asking me about evaluation. My answer was it's ongoing, right? So I might talk to a senior manager, a member of the C-suite or a small organization, could be the owner of a private company, whatever. And I say, let's just not have you address the media. And there is a, a collective <laughs> relief <laughs> immediately, <laughs> immediately visible on, on, on his or her face. Um, but I may call half an hour later and say, hey, the situation has drastically changed. And for reasons A, B, C, uh, maybe even more, we now need you uh, here in order to do X or Y or Z, which again may include addressing uh, either internal audiences. I mean, we're talking about large companies, right? So we may have a, a, a scenario unfolding where a senior leader now has to talk via a, a video conference to potentially tens of thousands of people, because that's how large the organization is. Right? When we were saying, well, oh, it's just internal, I would caution people, large organizations with senior leadership involved in a response to get the internal end online, you may be talking to tens of thousands of people. And that's yeah. not easy to begin with, potentially, for some folks, much less so in a crisis situation. Well, we only have about uh, three minutes left, just over three minutes left. And I meant to ask you a question earlier uh, regarding decision-making. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts of uh, leadership trying to make every single decision mm-hmm. you know, uh, in the boardroom versus those that are on the front lines that need to make some decisions? What are your thoughts on where that boundary should exist? Who makes what? Good question, Alex. It's it's a fine line. And again, my answer definitely is it's situation specific. So unless I know all of the facts, I would not be able to, and I don't think it would be professional as a matter of fact, to advise that A or B is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. But uh, there are certain situations that I come across fairly regularly where I'm actually discouraging senior management to take on too much. Number one, they have day-to-day things that they need to do, right? Running the company takes obviously a lot of time. And now you have this pile uh, on top of everything else. That's why we have 
the, the uh, uh, person at the helm of the crisis response team, crisis management team, whatever it may be called, uh, being someone completely different. It, it shouldn't be, as a matter of fact, the CEO. That's someone we pull in at certain junctions uh, when the situation requires, but it would be somebody very different to lead this team and then on an as-needed basis pull in executives and, and experts, topical experts and so forth. Yeah. So I guess what it boils down to is this. I have been in situations where I have asked senior leadership to be more involved, including CEOs, situation specific. And I've been in situations where I have proactively worked toward relieving senior management and, and pushing things over to the rank and file, if you will, within the different functional areas. Because let's face it, if I need an IT expert, then I need an IT expert. If I need that engineer, I need the engineer. If I have an HR-related problem, then I will be talking to HR and I want for senior leadership to move in that direction as far as the thought process is concerned, including designating people to actually take on specific tasks. Mm -hmm. And a, a CEO, while certainly very knowledgeable, experienced and so forth, will never be able and I say that to people right into their face when it comes to it even in a little more adversarial type situation potentially yes you came through the CFO function let's say but does that mean that you're the right person to address these things first of all it's potentially way too granular and uh, then there is also a, a, a possible problem attached to uh, uh, a scenario where the CEO thinks that he or she uh, is in charge of everything and mm-hmm. uh, knows everything, or at least wants to know everything and do everything, and it just doesn't work. You know? yeah. So we need to be mindful of, of those two extremes, if you will, and work toward the middle. And on that note, we've come to the end of the show. Oliver, thank you very much for sharing your expertise and time with us today. I know you weren't feeling uh, that well today, but uh, you certainly wouldn't know it. You, oh, very good. I'm, I'm obviously, glad. Yeah. You're obviously quite passionate about crisis leadership and crisis management. So <laughs> I, I sure <laughs> am. And I, I, I hope that, that uh, is, is something that the audience uh, uh, also was able to pick up. Oh, I think they they, they got it. <laughs> I know okay. I can feel it. <laughs> Very good, Alex. Yeah. So thank you so much. I really appreciate yeah. it. Um, hopefully feel better soon. Have thank a great you. day. And everybody watching and listening, stay prepared, everybody. Very, very nice chatting with you, Alex. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.